0: to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Z1 Chong. Hey everyone, happy Tuesday. We are in the midst of summer and time is going quite quickly, at least for me. I've been spending some time in the quiet suburbs of Shanghai before I head back to Zhuhai. There's actually a small but very strong artist community here, and it's been great getting to know all the people and artists in this area. Otherwise, I've been working on a four-channel video and prepping for a show in the fall. I've also been recording a ton of interviews with the Las Vegas community through the Rogers Art Love Residency, through which, for the latest episode, I'm excited to share with you I chat with the amazing Erica Hector Vital-Dazar. Erica is a professor of creative writing and marginalized voices in dystopia literature at the College of Southern Nevada. She is also a poet, writer of fiction, and the co-producer of the photo-narrative installation Obsidian and Neon, Building Black Life and Identity in Las Vegas. Furthermore, Erica is the editor of McSweeney's Of the Diaspora, a series revisiting classic Black works and literature. I thoroughly enjoyed getting to know Erica as we talked about sci-fi and Black futurism, reclaiming and revisiting one's past identity, and so many amazing book recommendations. As always, stay safe and healthy, both physically and mentally, wherever you are, and I hope you enjoy this.
1: Um, I was able to think about my work Right. Uh I was able to build scenes in my mind. Mm. I'm working on a novel. And, you know, it's a rather dark and violent novel. Mm -hmm. And I think my public persona is the complete opposite of that. Mm -hmm. But that is where I have spent a great deal of my life and therefore a great Part of my day, even as I'm involved in mothering and being a daughter and being a professor and a hopefully a good friend, I still kind of dwell in these rather dark places, creating scenarios, wondering how to move my character from one horror to the next. One
0: horror to the next, yeah. And
1: yeah, yeah. So in that way, Uh, Visiting that kind of nightmare space, yeah, I've been working today. But being able to sit down and really put the blocks together that make good writing, good storytelling possible, again, I feel like I've been doing that in my head, but not actually sitting down at my computer to do that work Mm -hmm. or at my page to do that work. I've devoted sort of the practical application of putting the words to page for the sake of my students, for the past couple of weeks during summer school, as I critique essays or as I critique creative writing pieces, I wonder how much that fuels my creative work or how much that is an extension of it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's hard. It's like this. It's like this. Like feedback loop as all these things are sort of you know happening back and forth. I know that kind of makes. Especially the question of like where do you get your ideas from? And I think you asked me earlier where did this podcast come from? It's sort of like, you know, we like the thing, this sort of like this like A to B sort of evolution, but it's actually like A to B back to A, back to B, back to A, maybe to C and then back to A. And then and then by the time it reaches whatever the thing that you think is the product is like, all these different things happen that it's hard to say exactly.
1: Yes. And I think that's part of the thrill that we get in creating. Mm -hmm. is we don't have a clear path, right? You you get to that moment of product. I like that word. Um, The product in front of you, and you can't always see the threads yourself that you've woven in, right? Because part of it comes from your dream life, maybe your dream life when you are an entirely other person. Part of it comes from your day-to-day life, um, encounter you may have had, right, in the supermarket. Or in the dentist chair, and all of a sudden, you know, you've got all of these things piled into the one piece, and there really isn't a point of origin. You can make one up, you can say it comes from this particular place, but it's really all the places.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, it's, I love these sort of unknown threads and paths that kind of lead us down this, this place that we don't know. Yeah, before we get into, I guess, more about the book that you're writing and also your past history as a writer, I was curious if you could talk a bit about you know where you grew up and how you kind of became into the person that you are today as a writer and activist and all these different things. Wow.
1: Wow, wow. You're demanding. I'm sorry. (laughs) Should
0: should we start with just where you grew up? We can do there.
1: I was born in Georgia. Really? Yeah, Athens, Georgia. Uh And left there when I was five. We moved to Virginia, another region of the South, right? Mm -hmm. But in so many ways, no longer the South. You know, being in the deep South compared to... Being right there at that line between North and South Virginia is probably still very much part of the gentility that we associate with being in Georgia, Mm -hmm. but some of the history is like that amalgam between D.C. and Mm -hmm. Philadelphia, New York. Yeah, Pittsburgh. Yeah, Pittsburgh. I was in
0: Pittsburgh for three plus years, that's why.
1: (laughs) Oh, beautiful. Pittsburgh is a wonderful art space. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I still consider myself... A Georgian? A Georgia peach. Yeah? Yeah, I do. The longer I'm away from that point of origin, the more I embrace it, the mm. closer I am to it mm. in so many ways. Um, I think I spent a great part of my life trying to distinguish myself from that identity of being a Southern woman. Mm-hmm. And part of that was probably because of the sort of presumption and stereotype and also difficult history of being a black woman from the South. Mm -hmm. And you want to transcend that geography, that psychological geography that comes attached with so much weight. Um, particularly when, for me, you're in your young college years and then your 20s, you've got stuff to do. You can't always stay in that place, that psychic place. Yeah. While at the same time, I never let go of it. I think I let go of the surface presentation of it. Mm. I always took a certain amount of pride in not being detectable as a Southerner for a great part of my academic career. Really? (laughs) Yeah. And then there came a moment when I allowed like all the y'alls Uh to come (laughs) out. And all the drawl and all the warmth that I associate Hmm. with being a Black Southern woman. Hmm. I think I was hungry for it, and so I embodied it.
0: Hmm. And where were you when you embraced it? Were you in Vegas or were you...
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like this whole bizarro world (laughs) away (laughs) from a real place. (laughs) Yeah. I had to become a real person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, going back a bit, why were you uh, moving around quite a bit? Were your parents constantly finding new opportunities or what were were they doing?
1: Um, When we moved from Athens, Georgia to the Chesapeake Bay area of Virginia, it was for opportunities. My father um, started a small business in Hampton Mm -hmm. and we left my grandparents, my aunts, my grandfather's land. Uh, We left all of that. And came to Virginia, lived in this sort of new landscape. It's not far from an HBCU, Hampton University. Okay. So kind of bourgeois, what we call bougie mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. in Hampton. You know, upper middle class, yeah, yeah. aspirational, very Cosby for a time. Mm-hmm. And then my father left Okay. suddenly. And my mother had... Been sort of used to a sheltering of sorts, right? That was stripped away. Mm. She was left with myself and my two older sisters. She had to provide for us. She had not been to college. So the only jobs that she was able to, right, get a hold of were retail, just not able to sustain really a family mm-hmm. in that kind of dark space. She went to school at night, and wow. she worked two jobs, and it was the late 70s, mid to late 70s, and she actually earned a degree in computer science and started working really? at NASA. Wow. Yeah, so it was sort of, I saw her do the things that I don't think she ever imagined herself doing. Mm,
0: that's beautiful.
1: And she did it with such grace, yeah. Yeah. It was beautiful to see. It was hard. I'm sure, yeah. But it was also very beautiful. And I model myself in many ways. From that demonstration, I don't know if I'll ever come close mm. to that great feat, you know? Yeah. I don't know if I ever will. I try. I hope to. It's part of my daily um, moving meditation. Mm-hmm to become just a fraction of what my mother is.
0: Yeah. Do you have a brother and sister or?
1: I have uh, two older sisters. So there are three girls. Yeah. So I can't imagine raising
0: three kids, three girls and having two jobs and doing night school like. (laughs) 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 I have trouble doing my own work and I don't have any of that. So (laughs) I just have a job.
1: You know, we thought we were doing something when we went to higher, right? Yeah, yeah. Degrees. Yeah, yeah. You know, eating ramen noodles, <laughs> you know, <laughs> working in a GTA position, going to the library and working on a paper. We thought that was heavy lifting. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. In our country and a lot of places in the world still don't recognize, you know, child care as actual work, right? As actual labor, which also makes it doubly hard.
1: Doubly and triply. I think more so now because, like I said, it was the 70s when my mother was doing all of that. And it was that era of latchkey kids, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think there was much, as much of a stigma for my mother to allow me to come home from first grade yeah, on my own right, with my yeah. key around my neck and let myself in. Yeah, yeah. I have two sons, and I would not imagine. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I would never have. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, if I'd seen any of my mommy and me. Like sisters doing that, I I probably would have sat in judgment of it. We just, (laughs) I really would have.
0: Yeah. So as a kid, were you always a writer, always writing things down, thoughts, you have a diary? Yeah. What was that like?
1: Yes. Very early. Creating stories, coming home again to an empty house, opening my notebook, spinning these kind of fantastic and even then um, horrific tales, very quiet, often sickly, which I find is part of the narrative a lot of a lot of writers, right? Mm. Spent a portion of their childhood bedridden or silent, mm. right? So yeah, I had all of that. I didn't keep many of those stories from when I was six and seven, but I remember some of them. And they're hallmarks of a um, girl that was trying to figure out perhaps the sudden shifts and changes Mm -hmm. in the familial landscape and what it meant and how I fit in it. And I'm trying to perhaps even seem functioning. But when I think of those stories, I don't believe I was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You said you've kind of lost these stories, like you threw them away. They never, uh, they were lost through the travels.
1: Lost through travel, lost through moving. Yeah, lost to time, but not really. I think they're still there. I think I'm still telling them.
0: Yeah, they never really truly disappear, I think. You know, I think... No. You know, again, going back to this idea of how ideas come about, you know, I think we don't give enough credit to our subconscious and like how things affect us in ways that we don't necessarily realize. So maybe maybe long time after. I mean, I think a lot about um, my videos and my own work, and I'm just like... I'm just sort of working instinctually, but all those instincts come from past experiences.
1: Yes, yes, yes. And how many of those past experiences are actually the experiences of your mother, mm-hmm. your father, their mother, their father? Yeah. Because if you believe, you know, what they say um, in the sciences about epigenetic memory, mm-hmm. right? That's one strand. And then the other strand is just what we might even believe metaphysically that passes through yeah so how much of our stories are truly our own and how much of them are being influenced by some ancestral voice Mm -hmm. it's it's really fascinating to me
0: yeah yeah i mean i think about ghosts i think about like you said rebirth reliving re-inhabiting of of a soul uh -hmm. regarding you know your own academic career how did you continue your writing throughout What were you writing as you kind of went into college and beyond?
1: I I am always reclaiming others past, I think. And sometimes I don't stop to recollect my own. So (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I was still writing through college. I was an art major my freshman year. Yep. At Hampton University. okay. Yes. And then I went on to graduate from Old Dominion University. And it was there that I changed my focus from art to journalism Mm -hmm. and an English degree, so dual degree. And it was there that I really started to work on my fiction, work on uh, my storytelling, as well as my journalism, which is a different type of Of storytelling, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And now it's something.
0: Now it's like something else.
1: (laughs) Yeah, something else, right? The Twain's do meet sometimes, right? I left Old Dominion with that degree, and then went on to graduate school at VCU. Okay. And yeah, for an MFA in creative writing. And there I studied with Paul Marshall, who is not only one of my favorite writers, novelist, essayist, and thinkers, but she fast became one of my favorite human beings. She's no longer with us Mm. on this plane, but she's still here. But yeah, I was uh, writing, publishing short stories, publishing um, some essays, working always on a larger piece. And I think I'm closer after discarding Um, several other novels I think I'm closer to what should realize itself and all those stories that I never told
0: Mm. and so this story that you're currently working on will this be your first novel or you've written other novels before
1: I've written other novels and stashed them yeah so this will be knock on wood like the first fully realized release to the universe and, and see what it does what it says just allow it to be rather than trying to tame it and project what it should be, just allow it. I think that's what I'm working on. As I season, as I (laughs) move through my years as a professor and a mother, I think I'm becoming more comfortable with imperfection Mm -hmm. and with letting go. Mm -hmm. And so I think this will be, it feels as though I'm comfortable with just letting the stories do what they do without being perfect.
0: Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about this novel, or is it all sort of, is that too, too close to home as, as you're in the middle of it?
1: Um, I think I can say that a woman wakes in her bed to find that the life she has built for herself has an underlying thread of <laughs> violence history and again that horror that she'd kept sublimated and buried so even though i say it's a a novel and it is it is fiction i can't help but think that that's every woman who wakes mm. in her bed <laughs> to some degree right yeah. like so i just want to take that as far mm. as it can possibly go mm.
0: is it a uh, science fiction or
1: you're very intuitive what made you ask that
0: well, you were talking about world building, right? And and so when you mm-hmm. when I think about world building, actually, when you first said that, the first thing I thought about was I heard this interview with NK Jemisin, and she was talking about world building. And that was the first time I actually heard a writer, a science fiction writer, describe what that meant. And I think as a someone who doesn't really write, I'm like, you know, the first thing that comes in my mind, I don't know, like Dungeon Dragons or just like Calvin Hobbes, you know, and just sort of creating these worlds. But then to like hear her talk about, okay, like if you have this earth or you have this planet and say you take out all the water what is what does this world look like or say you know you had humans and these human, or something like humans have tails but everything else is the same how does the world change what, what does that actually mean for society and, and then like actually researching you know the the elements that you've specifically changed in this world and then really getting deep into that so that was the first thing i thought about uh, in terms of uh, when you were talking about world building and and so forth. But that's where I was coming from.
1: No, it's beautiful because, yes, there is that element of the speculative and what can bump up against sci-fi and the supernatural that comes in. Yes, I I love that you went there with it because that was the part that I – you know, I kinda keep in my hip pocket. Oh,
0: sorry. Jimmy, take that out. <laughs> no, no, no.
1: No apologies whatsoever because I think it has more to do with not always feeling as those you are in conversation with are ready for that part. Not that you don't wanna share it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? That makes
0: sense, yeah. So I guess we can uh move on and let kind of let you have your space for the book and i'm excited to see what ends up with it but yeah i mean you also do all these other different things i know like you said your professor i mean when i saw the title of your position i thought it was really great It was professor of creative writing and marginalized voices in dystopian literature and i love that title and such a specific position i feel like in in a space of you know academia which i also feel like isn't necessarily always ready For something, you know, like that sort of topic, kind of like what you just mentioned, you're not sure of those who are in dialogue are ready to have the dialogue that you want. Um, And so, yeah, can you talk a little bit more about your role as as a teacher, as an educator, and as an an academic, but also within this specific role that you've carved out for yourself at the College of Southern Nevada?
1: Well, that particular position or titling did not exist. It didn't. Yeah. Um, fortunately, you know, at CSN and I'm sure many other community college spaces and also university spaces, you're allowed to create a curriculum. Of course, I had to um, submit it and have it approved. But that is the conversation. That is the discovery that I wanted to have in a college setting that is majority minority, I wanted to introduce and reintroduce the students in my classroom to versions of themselves in fiction, in poetry, in essay, that they had not been free to encounter or led towards or invited to participate in reading and talking about openly, Mm. Um, I wanted to introduce them to themselves, if that makes sense. Doing extraordinary things in extraordinarily trying times. I say that as though I'm, I'm talking about the fictionalized lives that we uncover in the course, but really it's conversations about our present Mm -hmm. lives that I want them to really investigate, start to analyze and move differently within, right? See where you are. So if you go into, let's say, for instance, um, severance, Ling Ma, or as we end, I move them towards Parable of the Sower. Mm Mm-hmm octavia butler Mm -hmm. i want them to really come to terms with this is not only happening on the page Right, right 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 yeah this is happening where we are yeah who are you what do you see how do you analyze your next move because you are these characters at this moment you were these characters when you were unaware and perhaps not conscious of being in these dystopian landscapes but now that you know, what will you do?
0: Yeah. And I bet that's also like a really eye opening course, especially for, you know, 18 to 22 year olds as, you know, as they're kind of being exposed to these voices, uh, probably for a lot of them for the first time.
1: We have a lot of fun, you know, um, it's often, of course, fraught, right? Mm-hmm. But we have a lot of fun. I want them to look back at the college experience as I look back on my college experience. Like you said, um, just, Moments of not completion when you complete a course, right? Mm-hmm. But moments of I've been given this seed. Yeah, I'm hungry for what grows. That's that's really the um, experience I want them to have.
0: Yeah, I think of I think someone once told me, you know, school is sort of like the wave that pushes you out into the ocean, and then. You forget what, what the original wave was, but you're somewhere new. It's sort of what someone described uh, education as. But you've forgotten the wave. You've forgotten all the details. You've forgotten all the nuances.
1: But you start to swim.
0: You start to swim, yeah, yeah. You know, you were also the editor for the um, McSweeney's of the Diaspora, where you've been revisiting and republishing certain works in literature. And also, there, I noticed more recently, there's like a photo series and so, could you talk a bit more about of the diaspora series and how did that come about and how you decide who 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 to um publish because I feel like there's so many voices that that are missing, and I can imagine that's like a real you know struggle as you try to figure that out
1: it is it's a beautiful struggle, but a struggle nonetheless like you said, there are so many voices that we need to revisit lance who you know. <laughs> mm-hmm beautiful my beautiful soul they have a particular relationship with the idea of sankofa go back and get it mm-hmm. i also have that sort of relationship with the past as something mm-hmm. to be retrieved and brought forward and this series is one of those way those ways to go back into what's meaningful that continues to show up, right, in contemporary literature. I can think of some very young, powerful voices, Brett Bennett, um, Alaya Don Johnson, that Daniel Evans, my gosh. They are advancing black literature, moving it forward into these, like, unforeseen creative spaces. And at the same time, I can see those threads of their forefathers and Mm foremothers. And so when I think about the works that we will be reprinting and that we have already reprinted through the series, I'm following that continuum where I see the kind of, again, those seeds that blossom into such work. So of course, with that in mind, One of the first voices I wanted to return to was Paul Marshall, and that book is Praise Song for the Widow. And along with Paul Marshall, we've reprinted uh, Wesley Brown's Tragic Magic. So when we look along the time continuum, Wesley Brown published Tragic Magic in 1978. Paul Marshall publishes Praise Song as we go into the late 80s, beginning of the 90s, and they're both reaching further back from their point of origin, right? Mm -hmm. So you get their present voices, and then you get the voices that precede them. Mm -hmm. So their characters are always not fixed in one space. Mm -hmm. They're going back to that ancestral past, which is what I'm really interested in With this series. And so, yes, you'll find in Of the Diaspora, I'm really mining for that connection, that cultural connection, that spiritual connection, that aesthetic connection that African derived peoples share, the dream life, the mundane, all of it. When I see those kind of scenarios, characterizations, plot lines, that form, that kind of center, where we are and where we're going, that's the work I want to to reach for and reclaim and reprint.
0: How did that come about? Did McSweeney approach you? Did you convince them we need this? How, How did that happen?
1: I think it was a combination of both of those, Mm. the approach and also the ongoing connection between myself and my good friend, Brian Dice, who's the president of McSweeney's. Mm. And we were talking about how we live and breathe and that's through books and very particular books at that. And wouldn't it be beautiful to not only think about those wonderful encounters that we've had with books that mean so much to us, but to bring those books back so that others can have those wonderful encounters with those books that mean so much and then start to build forward Mm -hmm. towards the contemporary voices. So we talked about it, and we talked about it some more, than we did it.
0: Nice. And so is it still ongoing? Are you planning to release more? And when you think it'll end, hopefully it'll never end, but I'm not sure what the plan is.
1: You know what? I think we're going to continue to add to the series. Nice. Um, just continue. So in 22, we're already planning to publish. And I don't think we've really talked about this publicly. But it's okay. I'm not saying that we can't. But I'm just, I'm so involved in doing things, I often don't talk about them. The next ones, yes, are... Um, they're already being shaped so -hmm. that would be marita golden's a woman's place Mm -hmm. and marita golden is special to the series and to me personally because she's the founder of the zora neale and richard wright foundation Ah, award with if you could talk about a continuum if you could line up All of the voices of some significance that have come to Black arts, Black literature in the past two decades, you're going to find that they were awarded. Yeah, yeah. So to have her first novel, A Woman's Place, as a part of the series is so necessary and Mm -hmm. it's so filled with this acknowledgement of who she is, but also the power of that novel the power of the story that she's telling, which is about three young women who come of age in the 70s, coming out of that kind of 60s awakening of civil rights, Mm -hmm. parents laying down their bodies, right, really literally, in order for the next generation to be able to grab hold of this idea of the American dream. And you see... What Marita Golden has done so brilliantly is, you see, the struggle that the dream is a slippery one.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: um, it's complicated by by gender, mm-hmm. class, region. Aspiration, you want to be an artist and not Mm -hmm. a lawyer or a doctor, right? right, right? right, I mean, those things that these three young women are pushing against as they're trying to establish their own freedom out of the freedom that has been legislated. It's just a brilliant novel. And Marita has written this new introduction that really, you know, brings the significance of the novel forward and at the same time, you know, places it in that very particular Setting of political unrest and personal unrest and racial unrest. And as I list all of those unrests, they're still present. <laughs> 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 Which is one of the things that I think is so beautiful and frightening, too, about yeah. reclaiming these works. Um, we're also looking at a piece that goes much further back to 1896. Um, published in 1920, but written in 1896. Mm. And as that writer tells his story in a series of essays and poetry and some of the first speculative fiction Mm. is printed in that work, some of the insights and imagery that he sets down as he talks about the wages of capitalism, the utility of race, He's talking about these things in 1896. Yeah. So clearly, and they still apply. So I'm really invested in the past. At the same time, I'm also heavily invested in black futurism. Mm -hmm. I'm a fan of Rashida Phillips and her black quantum physics and Mm-hmm. The ways in which, again, Octavia Butler, and you mentioned N.K. NK Jemison and Core for how they move us forward. They move us into places that promise something. It's not utopian. It's just another narrative thread that we hadn't imagined before because we keep telling the same story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a beautiful story. When does it translate into a new reality for us? I think I'm really interested in that what that new reality what form it takes where it moves us towards yeah i'm really really excited about that i love playing with that writing into that and reading writers who also write into that space at the same time are mindful of that past yeah Right. so it's sort of like a time traveling or balancing
0: yeah, yeah i mean i think that's really beautiful what you just said and how you put it in terms of like you were talking about this sort of black futurism and sort of like the connection between the past and the present and the future and how, how important I think that really is. You said a lot of your own work, you know, you're, you're interested in this sort of um, claiming of artifacts, claiming of past histories, claiming of memory. I'm also thinking about what you said earlier when you went to Vegas. Vegas is also this weird time more of a place, I think. Um, and then how you felt like you also had to kind of reclaim your identity as as a Southerner, as a Black Southern woman, and sort of in order to ground yourself and exist in a sort of way. Yeah, I mean, can you talk more about, I guess, these different ideas of identity and and, um, how it enters, you know, your way of thinking?
1: That's uh, really a powerful way to see it, establishing existence. I'm going to steal that from you. (laughs) Sure, you can. Sure, go ahead. (laughs) There's... Again, going back into our forebears, you know, Ralph Ellison wrote powerfully about being invisible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we think about black women, currently one of the conversations that we are having is about visibility,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is deeply ironic because... We look to black women to heal and to save us politically and spiritually. And there's a lot tasked on our being visible when we're needed.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: When we're needed.
0: I think they're also the most most there's most popular like gifs and, and use for means as well in order for expression. Oh my
1: gosh. If you don't write about that, if you don't really examine that, say more about that, I mean, someone's going to steal that idea from you. Because, yes, we are the memes. We are the the looks of, you know, astonishment, outrage, incredulity, anything mm-hmm. that you want to have kind of vibrant display of expression for. They turn to the voice or the image of a black woman to express it. Right. But. In other ways, you're then put back into, you know, your box, mm-hmm. you know, break in case of fire, right? I'm, I'm thinking about the way you you set, you know, the fire hydrant or the axe, right? Mm-hmm. Behind that, that glass until the fire starts mm-hmm. and you need it. Yeah. But there's a position of resting and holding in abeyance until that time. Mm-hmm. Until you're needed to right, be right. used, right. and and that's an old w- form of existence and narrative. It's very old. It goes back to our origins of use as enslaved beings, right? Which, when you think about the meme culture and you think about that continuum of of enslavement and mm-hmm. unrewarded labor, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, there's that unrewarded labor in this virtual space. Mm-hmm. That's sort of interesting and alarming. You took that to a very um, a, a place that I didn't expect, and that I'll have to think more of when it comes to being a black woman and and, and really establishing and claiming your existence. What does that look like um, for me? Sometimes it looks like just being quiet,
0: mm-hmm.
1: following my my passions to read and to love and to be still. Those are the ways I exist. And then the other ways are lending what I have to offer to the service of community, of being a a point of, of light and love for my sisters of all stripes, for community of all stripes, of artists, of students, of friends that's very important that I exist in that way too, that I can lend who I am mm-hmm. in order to elevate others is important to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can see that not only in, um, you know, the education and courses you're teaching, but like what we, we what we discussed already mixed of the diaspora and sort of the work never ends, right? The work is this, this ever evolving thing. And it, it's not separate from who we are, you know, how we exist and how we, um, Kind of place herself in the world.
1: I feel like I'm talking to you um, under the table, just going on. And on <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not used to talking so much, and I enjoy you know talking with you.
0: I enjoy it as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think one other thing that uh, I was curious about you. You also help were part of this, the Obsidian and Neon exhibition, um, which was, mm-hmm. you know, a few years ago, and it was a combination of portraiture, um, photographs, and then you writing the this sort of narrative. You know, could you talk a little bit about that process and, and kind of, you know, now that we've kind of talked a lot about these conceptual frameworks that we're working with, you know, how that sort of enters with this exhibition that you helped co-put up?
1: You know, when I think about it that is another project of reclamation Mm -hmm. going into Black community here in Las Vegas, which is often lost behind the neon, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Las Vegas has this cultural position that is without culture, and that's part of the allure, <laughs> that it, <laughs> that it sort of exists as a blank blank slate where, just as they said, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, which really means there's no history because <laughs> as soon as you make it, it disappears. Yeah, yeah.
0: that's one way to see it, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> it's gone. So I, I really wanted to... Engaged with the Black community here, particularly those who have been contributing to a history that already existed. West Las Vegas, the historic West Side, is steeped in Black accomplishment, noted and unnoted histories. And I wanted to go back and sort of connect with those who are still here to tell those stories Mm -hmm. and with those who are still currently doing that work. So photographer friend, um, just beautiful photographer, Jeff Scheid, photojournalist really of some note. We collaborated together on how do you go back and get it, as Lance says. Mm -hmm. And that kind of partnership Was born. And so far, we've collected 33 photographic portraits and narratives. So they range from Ruby Duncan, who in 1972 marched down the strip, Mm -hmm. shut it down with thousands of welfare mothers demanding that, again, visibility demanding that the $23 a month they were getting be acknowledged as not enough to raise a family, that it is acknowledged that it's not enough to provide health care for the children in your household, let alone educate and feed and clothe. So Ruby Duncan and a collection of other women from the historic West Side, they did that kind of work that, brought federal programs here, such as SNAP, built one of the first mm. free public clinics to exist in Nevada, mm. in the Western region. These black, uneducated, and I'm using air quotes here, welfare mothers mm-hmm. did this. Marlon Brando flew out to march with them, Jane Fonda. He did? <laughs> yes. Yes. There's a beautiful book that's written about it. It's called Storming Caesar's Palace. And so Jeff and I were able to photograph Ruby Duncan, Miss Ruby Duncan, and spend time with her. And she's one of the voices I depend on to this day. I'll call Miss Ruby and we'll talk. She's still a firebrand. She's still fighting for the rights of all mothers. And also, as she seasons, uh, one of the fronts that she's fighting on is for equitable health care, equitable mm-hmm. standards of living for those who are in their later years, yeah. seniors who are overlooked. Yeah, yeah, So we were able to profile Miss Ruby Duncan and then move forward to profile activists such as Tanisha Freedom. We've profiled artists such as Lance Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a rich collection of all kinds of presentations of blackness accomplishments disciplines gender presentations I just want it all in obsidian and neon politicians they're welcome too. (laughs) we've had a few of those profiles it's ongoing yes yes yes
0: yeah wow so, and do you have plans for an exhibition? How do you want this to be presented? You know, how do you kind of see this kind of existing?
1: It does live online, and it has been shown in museum spaces. Nevada State Museum yeah. was our last venue of showing. Right mm. before the shutdown, we were mm. uh, showing our our new cohort there along with delivering some really beautiful panel discussions on Black economics, um, the LGBTQIA community within the Black community, Black arts, Black Women's Roundtable. We were holding those kinds of panels, you know, conjunction with seeing, you know, the work. Yeah. And so our next um, space will be at the Las Vegas Sahara West Library in February. So we're going to add some new... Figures to that work to be unveiled in in February.
0: That's great. I wish I could see it. I'll keep an eye out um, as you update the website and yeah. You'll have to fly
1: out. You'll have to fly out, (laughs) man.
0: I'll have to fly out. Yeah. Although you know things are looking really sketchy with the virus still not going away. So yeah, yeah, I'm really hoping and like I think I was mentioning earlier, I was really hoping to live in Vegas for a little bit for the residency, but this had to happen sort of virtually. I was really excited. I think we talked about a lot of different interesting things, especially about our thoughts about science fiction, this idea of memory and, and artifacts. You know, I think you had a lot of beautiful things to say about all of those topics.
1: Thank you. I, I love being in company with the arts community here. That's one thing I can say about this vacuumed space that is Las Vegas. You know, I feel the arts community is really cohesive and supportive of one another, willing to kind of do the odd thing that brings us in company like this, like moments mm-hmm. like this. We're so far away from one another, and and yet... This connection you were willing to make with all of us, mm-hmm. I think, is a reflection of this place. And that's one thing I will be eternally grateful for. I sometimes wonder how long I'll, I'll continue to um, live in this desert, right? I think it's very easy to become really rooted in this the barren soil that <laughs> is filled with like so many like unexpected life-giving mineral sources, right? Yeah, yeah, You're yeah, just yeah. there. And I I have to be grateful for the time here because it does this. Mm. I also have to be aware of the time here because it does this.
0: I mean, time kind of exists in a strange place in i feel like desert locations right because you have less seasons so you have less markers i know i I lived in um, la for a few years and i met quite a number of people who have trouble remembering markers in life because there's no seasons right because you know i grew up i grew up in new york and new hampshire and so they're like seasons. so you kind of place things based on the year but when you don't have seasons, sort of like this long thing. So they're like, when was that? Was that like a year ago, <laughs> five years ago? I don't know. Because the place doesn't change, right? Uh, I mean, it changes, but but um, not in the seasonal way that I think the mind kind of acts in a funny way with that. Yeah, There's the
1: illusion of not changing.
0: Yeah. There's yeah.
1: the illusion. I enjoyed this time with you. I look forward to meeting you again.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, I was wondering, you know, where can the listeners learn more about you and and keep up with some of the great work that you're doing?
1: I have an Instagram that I occasionally keep up with, and it's (laughs) at -V v i t a l. And look for the Obsidian and Neon exhibition in February and also this summer in August. I'm working with Alicia Curlin. Okay. And the Women of Color Arts Festival. And I'll be curating an exhibit at the Barrack. Oh nice. It's black women seeing scenes. So yes, mm-hmm. if um those who are here and uh those who are online and have access to the Barrack Museum's page, drop in and, and see what comes up.
0: I'll make sure to add a link to that. But yeah, great. Thanks so much. Well, um, yeah, again, I'm, I'm so happy to be able to talk to you and meet you. And I really hope that I get to meet you in person sometime in the future. And uh, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah.
0: All right. Bye. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Z1 Chong. Additional help with editing by Tokyo Home and Mandy Tong. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Pod. If you enjoyed this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening, and goodbye for now.